Welcome to Oncology Today, Current Management and Future Directions in Mesothelioma, a special program focused on recently published and emerging clinical research. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met with Dr. Marjorie Zalderer from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. In addition to this audio podcast, there's also a video component with Dr. Zalderer's slide presentation. To begin, I asked her to review the current classification of mesothelioma. So there's epithelioid, sarcomatoid, and then biphasic. And biphasic is a combination of the epithelioid and the sarcomatoid. And for better or worse, we often use non-epithelioid to refer to tumors that have any component of sarcomatoid disease. So that would be both sarcomatoid and biphasic. Can you talk a little bit about what we've learned over the last few years? If anything, I imagine we have learned some things about the biology of mesothelioma, and particularly its immunogenicity, TMB levels, et cetera. TMB is really low across the board. The median TMB, depending on which series you look at, is about somewhere in the threes. And so there are not these hyper-mutated, smoking signature kind of tumors that we see. We've learned a lot, but the mutations are disproportionately in tumor suppressor genes, and the therapeutic targeting of that is much more elusive than an oncogene. And so there have been a lot of strategies looking at, for example, olaparib in BAP1 mutant disease. So BAP1 is really important for DNA damage response pathways. So the idea is you could try to approach it in a synthetic lethal way. So you have one defect in DNA damage repair. If you give a PARP inhibitor and block it in another way, can you just prevent enough DNA damage repair that the cell will stall or go through apoptosis? Those studies have had mixed results. There are a lot of small single-arm trials in MISO where there's a partial response rate of 5%. So a couple of patients respond, and for them, it really was the right drug. But for the majority of patients on the study, we don't see more than that flicker. And so a lot of what the research is focusing on now is helping to parse out the disease in a lot more detail. Can we separate out and say, the patients whose tumor have cell cycle mutations are going to behave differently than those with DNA damage repair proteins. But those are all still hypothetical questions. We don't know the answers to. Nowadays, when you see patients like the ones that you just presented, in general, do they have any history that relates to asbestos, smoking? What's the epidemiology nowadays? So, The majority of patients I see still have some asbestos exposure that they can point a finger towards. I'd say when I've looked back at our experience, it's more about 60% than what's traditionally quoted as 80%. That said, I think that there's a lot of asbestos exposure outside of the traditional occupational exposures that probably many people have, and we just don't know. And I'm sure that forensic epidemiologists and exposure specialists might be able to find that. I also, being at a tertiary referral center, I actually see a fair number of people 
who developed mesothelioma after treatment for childhood or adolescent lymphoma. So there's a bunch of people who have had mantle radiation in the 80s and later develop mesothelioma as a complication of that. That's really interesting. What's uh, thought to be the pathophysiology? Is anything known at a molecular level about how asbestos actually causes this? So there's some knowledge about that. It induces an inflammatory reaction in trying to get rid of that fiber, but the body's unable to. And in that process of sort of pushing it and trying to expel it, the inflammation cascade over a very long timeline of 20 to 40 years results in accumulation of enough mutations that it transforms. We think that BAP1 mutation is an early event that occurs that starts the cascade. Hmm. So BAP1, you said a DNA repair damage. How does it, for example, interact with PARP, if at all? So we don't know that it directly interacts with PARP. I think BAP1 does a few different things. Certainly, it can influence transcription factors. It has a role in epigenetics, and then it has a role as a chaperone for some other proteins that interact. So BAP1 stands for BRCA1-associated protein, and so that's thought to be its binding partner. Interesting. I'm just kind of curious, what are some of the questions you ask to elicit an asbestos history in a patient who doesn't have an obvious history? Is it all about occupation, or do you go outside of that? It's interesting, and I don't know if it's a reflection of the type of patients I typically see But most of them have already done a lot of that work and investigating and been in touch with lawyers by Mm. the time I'm meeting them. And so most of the time, patients either say to me, I have no idea where I got it from, and this is a total mystery, or they say, I know that in 1983, I worked in a building that was being repaired. Mm. So if I have patients that don't know those things, I ask them about their employment history and residences. And then also there are some people who have what we call secondary exposure. So a lot of times it was the wife or the family of the tradesperson. Dad would come home, asbestos on his clothes, and it was whoever was shaking them out and washing them was the one who actually developed disease. So in that kind of paradigm, those cases have been written about a lot. Wow, that is really interesting. What about the pd one levels that you see? And what fraction of mesothelioma patients are smokers or ex-smokers? About a quarter of patients seem to be sort of recent smokers and maybe another quarter are former smokers. PDL1 is a lot like lung cancer in that it tends to either be very low or very high, and there isn't a lot in that 20 to 70% range, but there's a lot at 70, 80, 90, and a lot that's 10 or less. The number that we see when we look, the sort of median tends to be about 40%, so it's a little biased towards less expression than more. 
I'd say that's pretty high. That sounds high to me. And actually, I noticed in the Ipinevo trial, it looked like most of those patients were PDL1 positive. Yep, definitely. Like three quarters of them, I think. Yeah. It might have been selected that way. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it was selected that way, but definitely it was about 140 had negative PDL1 and about 400 and change were positive out of this 600 plus study. So definitely the majority had it. I don't want to get into, of course, all the new and exciting data that's come out recently in treating mesothelioma, particularly immunotherapy, as well as tumor treating fields. But just to get started on that, just out of curiosity, what's been seen with single agent IO in lung cancer? That's commonly utilized over 50%. That's the typical therapy and most of the patients respond. What about single agent IO and mesothelioma? We haven't done a lot looking at single agent IO in untreated patients, but there's a lot of data as second-line therapy and beyond. And the response rates are pretty comparable to what we've seen in lung, ranging from that upper teens to about 30, depending on the agent and the context in the particular trial. Um, So certainly until this checkmate data, I think that that was primarily how the drugs were being used as single agents in the second-line setting. So maybe you can go through some of the recent data. Maybe we can start out with the Epinevo study because that really seems like it's going to affect practice. So this was a study target accrual of 605 patients. They all had unresectable disease, no prior therapy, good performance status. And randomization was stratified by two things, by gender and by histology, either epithelioid versus sarcomatoid or biphasic, because there was some signal from the prior trials and the second line and beyond settings that sarcomatoid-containing tumors might be more responsive. So they wanted to control for that. Patients got the chemo, and it was either cis or carbo with pemetrexid up to six cycles. And the ipinevo was given three migs per kg Q2 weeks, and the ipi was one mig per kg Q6 weeks. And patients received that up until either two years progression or unacceptable toxicity. And so this was a large trial, multiple centers, international effort. It was powered for a primary endpoint of overall survival, which I think is really important. We've had several trials in mesothelioma that were either single arm phase two or randomized phase twos that didn't pan out when they converted into phase threes or had early signals around response rate and PFS that didn't always pan out. So this was really designed, I think, the right way to look at overall survival as the long-term endpoint. Accrual was really brisk. There's also historically been a lot of, I think, belief that it's hard to accrue. And really, because the treatment options are so limited for these patients, there's an eagerness to participate in trials. And so in less than a year, this trial was fully accrued. But it did take several years to see all of the data and to have this readout. And what we saw was that there were separations in terms of overall survival 
at both landmark analyses at 12 months, at 24 months, and really persistent differences even out to 36 months. And so for everyone involved, the difference in median survival, it was 18 versus 14 months, which is a big difference and a statistically significant difference in this group. I think that what is interesting in this data that was presented by Paul Boss was that the initial PFS isn't actually improved. So while the OS curves actually in the first three months or so, the ipinevo arm is doing a little bit worse, and then the curves cross at just beyond three months, and then the chemo group really dips off relative to the immunotherapy. And I know that it's hard to read too much into these details, but one of the things I always think about is if it takes a while for this immunotherapy to kick in, can my patient tolerate that weight? And I think that that's why with the epithelioid patients who don't really have a statistically significant difference or a much smaller difference in terms of long-term overall survival, it's sometimes tempting to give therapy with the bevacizumab along with the chemo instead of immunotherapy. I think that all of that really speaks to why I'm very excited to also see the chemo IO data because I think moving immunotherapy up front gives the possibility for these amazing responders to have durable response, but it also undercuts some of that risk for the early progression that we sometimes see with immunotherapy by giving a cytotoxic agent at the same time. So I think that the preliminary data from the two single-arm trials is really encouraging, and those studies have the highest response rate out of any of the trials, and the survival on the chemo-IO looks better than the survival from the ipinevo. Again, small numbers, cross-trial comparisons, but I think it leaves us really curious to see how chemo-IO plays out. The other thing, too, again, referencing lung cancer, there was a study presented. It was like two doses of chemo ipinevo followed by ipinevo alone, dealing with that issue of trying to get those early progressors or slowing the tumor down acutely, give them time to get their immunotherapy response. Is that being looked at in mesothelioma? As far as I know, that's not currently being looked at, but I think that's where everyone's thoughts have gone to. And there's a lot of interest in thinking about what the optimal timing and combinations would be. I think there's also a lot of interest in trying to pull out and identify those people who, even more accurately, who are going to respond or be the early progressors. As in every disease, the lack of a really strong biomarker hampers some of our ability to really personalize the treatment with the drug for that individual that's going to work best. But if we could find those folks at highest risk for early failure and convert them to one of these combination or sequential approaches, I think that would be really transformative. Right. What I see people doing along is they look at the patient and say, can they tolerate a little bit of tumor progression on the edge of what they think might be a real bad problem? They think more in the high pdl one level, or they really have a choice between adding 
the chemo or not. So it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. So I'm curious right now, I mean, Ipinevo has been approved. And can you remind me, is it approved in all mesothelioma or just the non-epithelial? So it's FDA approved in all meso. I think what's interesting is, again, the UK and Australia, where there is more of a cost-benefit analysis, I think that there's some discussion that the approval may be differentiated by histology. So I think we're waiting to see. That's complicated, right, as a trialist, because it creates different international standards of care. So it makes it hard to think about and design the trial that comes next. So I think we're all very eager to see how those agencies interpret these data. I'm really eager to hear what the NCCN is going to say or has said. Are they going to break it out? How are they going to approach it or how did they approach it? So actually, Greg Riley is our representative on the mesothelioma panel, and they included Ipinevo as an option for frontline, but they did put a footnote disproportionately that it was favored amongst sarcomatoid or biphasic histologies. From your point of view, how do you feel about differentiating it? Are you thinking you're going to use it in everybody or just the non-epithelial? I'm definitely going to use it in the non-epithelial. So sarcomatoid biphasic, unless there's some reason where I don't have an underlying condition or issue that they couldn't safely get it. The epithelioid cases are really much harder and it's a much more nuanced and individual decision where I'm thinking about all of the things that you mentioned. We're thinking about PDL one we're thinking about what is the disease burden? Does this person have the room to wait 6, 10, 12 weeks for a response if that's going to happen? And then I also think about whether they could have bevacizumab because if they could have bevacizumab and the PDL1 is low or negative, then I actually think the triplet might be more beneficial. And that wasn't part of the comparison. Whereas if they can't have bevacizumab, then I think it's more equivocal whether the chemo is better or not. What are they doing about Bev and the chemo IO trials? So right now, it's not part of this large cooperative group trial that's been planned, but there are some smaller investigator-initiated trials, I believe, looking at chemo, bevacizumab, and atezolizumab. So I think we will have probably single-arm data about that combination as well. Can you talk a little bit about what is known about tumor treating fields and basically how it works, what happens with the patient, and what we know about it in patients with mesothelioma? I think that the challenge is whenever there's something disruptive or something novel, I think it's harder for people to integrate it. We all feel like we understand immunotherapy and VEGF inhibitors and cytotoxics, but tumor treating fields is really a whole new class of therapy. And the fundamental way that it works is that the pulsation of the field disrupts the formation of the structures in mitosis. And so the chromosomes and the spindles are not able to align properly and the cell division aborts because it's not lined up in the right way. And there seem to be different frequencies that are better from preclinical modeling for some diseases as opposed to others. 
It's interesting with GBM, there was a randomized phase three trial that showed that it was beneficial to have the tumor treating fields, and yet the use and uptake of it still lags behind what you might expect from a positive phase three trial. And I think we face some of the same barriers in meso, coupled by these patients are older, their respiratory system is compromised, and the operational logistics of asking them to be hooked up to a machine and lug it around 18 hours a day makes everything a little bit harder. I think that it's certainly an intriguing option, and it very well may be adding something to the chemotherapy, but I don't think we understand the mechanism in a much more specific way, and we don't necessarily understand whether it's additive or synergistic with the chemotherapy. I remember when we used to talk about that as a related GBM, we got into these issues again of the patient. Apparently, there's no real side effects, so maybe some skin things, but no systemic toxicity, correct? Yeah, exactly. The same thing. What exactly is it? Like something they wrap around their chest? Yeah, it depends on the distribution of disease, but it's usually a panel that's attached to the skin on one side of the chest and then has wires to the battery pack that you can carry in a bag or a backpack. The last version of it that I saw looked a little bit almost like a very thin solar panel. It has those almost like electrodes with the wires and each one's small and thin almost like the tabs for an EKG on someone's skin, but it's many of them attached in a panel. And the skin irritation they've gotten from the GBM experience, they know how to manage that potential irritation and they have support services that push out into the home environment. And so they've become very good at managing that skin toxicity. And who determines exactly where to put it? So typically, if you're going to prescribe it right now, it's radiation oncologists. So really working with them because it's most similar to the types of planning that they usually do on how to optimally place the array relative to the distribution of disease in the chest. So could you talk a little bit about the key trial that looked at tumor treating fields, the so-called, it was a phase two, one-arm study, the STELLAR trial. What did they look at there and what did they see and what do you think it means? So this trial had a, a very similar structure to the chemo IO trials. So it's patients with unresectable disease who haven't had prior therapy, ECOG 0 or 1. Patients were able to get cisplatin or carboplatin given with pemetrexid as well as having the tumor treating fields applied for 18 hours a day. And after four to six cycles, patients who had a stable disease by imaging or partial response were able to stay on the tumor treating fields in a sort of maintenance fashion. And the primary endpoint for this study was overall survival, and it was powered to detect an increase of 5.5 months in overall survival compared to the historical control from the emphasis trial of 12.1 months. And it did do that. The median overall survival in this study was 18.2 months with a confidence interval of 12.1 to 25.8. 
57% of patients had a partial response, 3% had progressive disease, and 40% had stable disease. So basically 97% of patients had disease control. And this was a mixture among these 72 patients who were ultimately evaluable. But this was a mixture of epithelioid, sarcomatoid, biphasic patients. And they had a median PFS of 7.6 months. And we see from a lot of the chemo trials that six, seven months seems to be the median PFS for cispembev, chemo-IO, and ipinevo. As you mentioned before, the systemic side effects did not seem increased with the use of the tumor treating fields. It was very much in line with what we see from just chemotherapy. The only things that were different were a lot of patients had mild skin reactions. About 5% had grade 3 reactions, but the majority of skin toxicity was mild and easily managed or self-limited. And so there was also no increased toxic deaths, which I think especially when we talk about ipinevo compared to chemo, where there's an increase in treatment-associated death, we don't see that with tumor-treating fields. So it's definitely safe. And there's certainly some suggestion from this single-arm trial that there may be some activity here that's improving what we see beyond chemotherapy alone. Can you just explain one thing to me about this trial? It's a little bit perplexing. So as you said, 70 out of 72 patients, disease control rate, but yet the PFS was 7.6 months. So half of them relapsed within seven and a half months. So how do you get disease control in 97%? So they were only looking at that first scan, that six-week scan. Really? So the time point is short. And I think that's spot on to one of the questions that I have, which is, so what happens to that 40% of people who initially respond, but it's not durable, it's not sustained, it's not moving the PFS? So who are those people and why does it seem like initially they're at least stable, but then not having that be sustained? Is it because this just happened to be, for whatever reason, a slightly more indolent cohort of patients and progression really emerged, but it wasn't radiographically measurable till a subsequent scan? Or is it that tumor treating fields is doing something, but in some people it's a very short-lived activity? In a single-arm trial, I don't know that we're going to be able to sort that out. I am curious what the NCCN says about TTF. So, so far they have not included TTF in the NCCN as a treatment option. I know that that's often a topic of conversation. I think that there's a lot of single arm phase two clinical trials of agents over the years, particularly in combination with another active agent that look promising and don't pan out in phase three. So I think that a lot of people feel strongly that without randomized data, that it would be premature to recommend it, even though it has this FDA approval for an HDE. Right. And I was curious in terms of HDE, humanitarian device exemption, how they think that through, what their process is for that type of FDA approval. I think that it has to be a disease that affects 10,000 or less people a year. 
And I think in the eyes of the FDA, they don't want to limit development of different interventions for diseases that are rare, both because it's difficult sometimes to do studies, but also because the end market may not be so substantial that companies want to invest. And so it's a mechanism to help patients and communities get access to something. And so the bar is low. It's just safety with perhaps some kind of rationale for why it might be efficacious, but not at all the stringent benchmarks that are needed for a systemic therapy with a traditional approval to get through the FDA. In 2018, the NCCN updated its guidelines to recommend tumor treating fields in combination with temozolomide as adjuvant therapy for patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma. I can remember when we talked about this, it was at the SNOW meeting a couple of times over the years, As you said, of course, there's a lot of skepticism when you see a new technique, but I thought it was really exciting that there's a completely new strategy to even look at. Maybe this isn't so exciting, but maybe you tweak it the right way or figure out the right patients. I think it's cool. I don't know about exactly how applicable it is right now. Are you recommending it to your patients and what kind of situation would you think about it? Generally speaking, when I have patients who can't go on a clinical trial, and who aren't, for whatever reason, I'm not going to recommend immunotherapy as the initial trial. It's always one of the options we talk about in our conversation. It's hard for me. I think it's exciting, but for me to wholeheartedly recommend it or encourage it, I'd really want to see some randomized data first. Well, I mean, even if you look at the single arm data in terms of indirect comparison, I mean, it's kind of like, I remember Ibrutinib before it was approved. You just looked at what it was doing. You knew what was going to happen. But there's a lot of situations in oncology, kind of, it's not as obvious. It kind of looks a lot like, I mean, it's hard to pick one number that's way better. I mean, it's great they had disease control, but now that you say it was six weeks, that seems a little short. But still, I don't know, I guess it's a tough decision. It also kind of seems like it may be not as intrusive as the one on the head. I mean, yeah, you have to have the machine and all, but when it was on the head, I think it bothered people. Maybe it would be less on their thorax. I don't know, but really interesting. And one other thing about TTF, can you or would you give Bev chemo with it? I haven't recommended that. I worry about the skin toxicity with people on bevacizumab at the same time. I think that the data support that it's been very safe and that the skin toxicity has been mild and manageable, but it's 60-70% of folks are having skin toxicity and we really don't know how bevacizumab is going to impact the healing And a lot of times it's an area that's already had a biopsy and an incision or some sort of procedure. So as of yet, I haven't recommended that in combination. I was going to say, do you think it could be synergistic? But I guess that'd be too far out there. Speaking of synergy, I am curious, though, whether the strategy of VEGF TKI and IO has been looked at. We're seeing that in a bunch of different tumors, obviously endometrial cancer. HCC, the combination of anti-angiogenic and IO, has that been looked at in mesothelioma? 
There are some studies looking at VEGF and IOPD1 or PDL1 in combination. And some of those have been with chemotherapy and some have been without. We're still waiting for those studies to read out. But I think extrapolating from other diseases, we're definitely excited about those prospects. I don't know whether, maybe it's just that I see things from such a macro point of view, but do you see any similarity between mesothelioma and pancreatic cancer? Well, I see some similarity in terms of they're both somewhat have been classically pretty recalcitrant and have dismal outcomes. What is interesting are some of the genetic mutations that we're now finding in pancreas cancer. While they're different, we do find a lot of germline genetic mutations in patients with mesothelioma, about 11 to 12%. And so I see those kinds of similarities between the diseases. I don't know. I just think of both of them as a lot of messy tumor, a lot of extra cellular stuff difficult penetration of systemic therapy. From that point of view, does it seem similar? I mean, I'm not saying so much biology as more, I don't know, phenotype. I think in terms of the difficulty of separating from the normal surrounding stroma and tissue, absolutely. The planes can be obliterated, which is part of what makes a lot of the surgical resections difficult. And I often think of the pleura as a bit of a sanctuary site for a lot of the things that we try. And that's why I find some of the techniques and therapies that are really being developed for intrapleural administration really exciting in this disease because I think it overcomes one of those limitations in how we treat people. Can you talk a little bit about that work, that research that you're talking about, the installation of stuff into the pleura? There have been a bunch of trials looking at first modified oncolytic viruses, trials with vaccinia, virus, adenoviruses. Right now, there's a trial looking at injecting an adenovirus along with chemo and interferon to try to stimulate some kind of immune response. Because the pleura is so, relatively speaking, easily accessible, it's been an area of interest in this idea of trying to convert an immunologically cold zone into a hot zone by injecting a virus that would start enough of an immune response that the rest of the body's mechanisms would come to that location and attack the cancer. The other thing that's been an area of research has been looking at cell-based therapy, in particular T-cell CARs, and injecting them either intrapleurally or there have been trials with peritoneal mesothelioma injecting into the abdomen. And again, the same philosophy, if you can stimulate enough of a sort of local immune provocation, can you bring the full force of the body's immune system to that location to do what it should have done in the first place and eradicate the tumor? Hmm. Any other new areas of research that you're excited about in mesothelioma? What about the issue of DNA damage repair? You were mentioning that there are quite a few germline mutations. What do we know about PARP inhibitors and in, in mesothelioma? There was a clinical trial of olaparib at the NCI, and it separated patients into BAP1 altered, a different DNA damage 
repair pathway alteration or unaltered. And last I had heard, although these results haven't been presented, that child was on a, a cruel pause. So I don't really know what the readout's going to be. There's also been a trial of a different PARP inhibitor in patients with all comers of BAP1 mutated cancers. In addition to meso, that would be potentially renal cell, cholangio. And then there was a trial of another PARP inhibitor in the UK, a single arm trial, and that had a modest response rate. So again, it's not the EGFR story or the ALK story where you have the biomarker and even in a single arm phase two trial or a phase one expansion trial, like with crizotinib, you have this astronomical response rate and you just know what it means. We're not seeing that story in meso despite a lot of work around it. So we haven't figured out the way to really exploit those vulnerabilities yet. I was just thinking, can you use TTF in the peritoneum? That I don't know. I know that they are working on a lot of different tumor types, certainly lung cancer, but others as well. So I think that the arrays and the right frequencies are being worked out for different tumors and locations, but I don't know about the abdomen. So that's one other question I'm curious about. Just wondering if there's you're in a pretty unusual position of seeing a lot of patients with a very unusual or uncommon situation. And the other thing about this tumor is you were referring before to attorneys and all the legal basis and the tie into previous occupations in many patients. And I'm wondering if you ever get exposed to some of the feelings they have about that, of their occupation or whatever it might be contributing to this terrible illness. And I wonder if that ever comes out in your conversations or maybe you just focus on other things. It certainly comes out. And definitely as people engage in the legal process, it comes out. I think that pursuing the legal process for many people who do it is absolutely the right thing, but it takes a toll physically, emotionally. It takes up a lot of time for people when time is already limited. But when it is successful, Sometimes the sums of money can be very meaningful for families. I think it's also really powerful to have someone to point a finger at and to blame. And there's both what you're speaking of, that anger, but there's something productive about being able to channel it in a really focused way. I think that the people I see who struggle the most are the ones who don't have a clear finger to point or place to blame. And that disproportionately tends to be younger people. And my office is full of 20 and 30-year-olds who have this disease, and we just don't know where. And it's so frustrating because they don't fit that model and that paradigm of who's supposed to get it. And how can you be safe and avoid something if you don't even know where you're getting it from. And I think that's actually the hardest. There's a lot now also speculatively about the talcum powders. And it's not always the classic occupation. It's also the talcum now that we're seeing, but there's still other people where they're just like, I don't know where this came from and just adds a level of difficulty to what's already a very trying situation. 
You mentioned germline mutations. When I hear about a lot of 20 and 30 years old, that's one way to be thinking, I guess. Yeah. Although maybe talcum powder as a baby too, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what goes through people's mind who have this disease and really start looking into it. That's why I was bringing it up because I think it would really play with your mind. Absolutely. That's why when they find the smoking gun, I think it's very satisfying. But when you embark on it and it's really not necessarily as clear or so clear, it's frustrating. And it's interesting because we've worked for a long time to try to bring about national registries to try to help us start to really understand who's getting this disease and what's happening to them. And those things become really political, right? And have legal ramifications. What information's in the database? And are the plaintiffs and the defense going to have access to it? And so something that I approach from a scientific perspective, completely not an expert in all of the other aspects of the situation that it touches upon. And it's not easy to start to pick apart why. And I know that when we first started looking at the germline, that was controversial for a lot of patients, for a lot of different stakeholders. And even though I believe that scientifically it's the right path, not every patient of mine wants to get tested, even if that would seem on paper appropriate. And I'm sure geneticists face that all the time in any disease, but I think that the legal issues amplify some of those concerns in mesothelioma. That's a great point. What do we know about the genetics of this when you trace it in families? Do you see it? So the first reports were about nine years ago now, and it started with two things in parallel. There were two families in the U.S. who were profiled where an individual had both uveal melanoma and mesothelioma. And that's just so statistically unlikely that they started to build out the family. And that was how they discovered that germline alterations in BAP1 predisposed to mesothelioma, uveal melanoma, what was at that time called atypical spitz nevi, cholangiocarcinoma, and clear cell renal cell. And then another family was built out. In addition, there's been a lot of work in Turkey and Cappadocia where there are arianite fibers that cause meso built into the stone and the homes are built into those caves and into that mineral and rock. But what you would see is that in one home, everyone would have meso and in the home next door with the same minerals and fibers, no one would have it. And so that also led to a lot of profiling and really was able to confirm some of the findings. And these things kind of happened in parallel, but both reports really highlighted that BAP1 is a driver of mesothelioma. We find that in about 4 to 5% of an unselected mesothelioma cohort. And then about another 7% or so will have alterations in other known cancer predisposing genes, but ones that haven't been traditionally associated with mesothelioma. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Zatterer, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.